How's everyone doing today? Everyone's doing mostly silent. Cool. No sweat. Uh, won't you go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 12? If you're reading uh, from the Pew Bibles that are available, they look like this. Uh, and uh, page 848 will get you to the right passage. I'm going to pray while you guys are getting your, your phones out or your Bibles out. Lord, Thank you so much for this morning. Uh, this morning we are going to explore the, the gift that you've given to the world, which is you yourself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So this morning, uh, I just ask the Holy Spirit to lend to us a deep divine awareness that Jesus is in our midst today, that his spirit is breathing in this word, and alive within those of us who are believers, and not far from those who are not believers. That this is by your will, Father, that we would be reconciled to yourself. Thank you so much for my family and friends here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, we are uh, continuing Mark chapter 12. The events of our passage today take place the week that Jesus is going to die on the cross. And it seems like this is taking place on the Tuesday. There's a little bit of conjecture that this may be the Wednesday, and we don't need to get into that very much. But the, the way that Mark has organized his, uh, this portion of his gospel book is to show that in response to Jesus cleansing the temple, and really all of the ministry that Jesus has had up to this point, that a diverse combination of different factions of Jesus' enemies have joined together to create this sort of gauntlet of questions that are supposed to defame Jesus and um, maybe even condemn him to death. Now, there's several people involved. There's scribes who, who have the office of being church expert, or excuse me, scriptural experts. There are chief priests who work in the temple. There are elders who are influencers in the social people group. And even within that, there's different, uh, there's different philosophies in the midst of that. There's Sadducees who really only believe the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures and don't really believe in anything supernatural, especially eternity. There are Pharisees who are extremely orthodox and conservative who know the scriptures and believe the scriptures and obey the scriptures down to the letter. There's also people involved here who are really the enemies of Israel, the Herodians who, who welcome the foreign rulership of the Herods who were in the hand and under the thumb of the Roman rulers. All of these people who hate each other have gathered together to run Jesus through this gauntlet. It's kind of like one of those old action movies where the hero gets to a warehouse and everybody takes their shot at the hero and he's kind of plowing them one at a time and they're each taking their turn and the last one's usually a martial artist and he takes him down too. It's like that. Everybody's taking their turn taking jabs at Jesus. And it, this continues from about Mark 11.27 all the way through 12.34. Mark has arranged this gauntlet to show that Jesus has been bombarded by his enemies. And after every instance of combat, Jesus has overcome. He's outwitted them. He's outsmarted them and passed all of their tests. Now, the interesting thing is this gauntlet takes a weird turn at the very end. This is the passage that we discussed last week. There was one among them, a scribe, who asked Jesus what the most important commandment of all of Scripture was. Now, what's interesting is this man approaches Jesus, and he has a very genuine moment with Jesus. However, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that that scribe he asked Jesus this question to test him. But the problem for that scribe is once Jesus has answered, the most important commandment is to love God and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus kind of won this man over and the scribe agreed with Jesus. He says, you know what, you're, you're right. That really is the most important commandment. 
And Jesus tells him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This scribe who was sent there by Jesus' enemies and began this conversation as Jesus' enemy, and Jesus end up kind of aligning with one, other, with one another. They kind of come to an agreement. But Jesus doesn't award him full faith in Jesus Christ or full salvation. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. And that begs the question, well then, what would bring us in? At this point, at the end of the gauntlet, Jesus has taken the floor. Everybody has had their try to take shots at Jesus. Jesus has won every argument. But here, when Jesus and his enemy have come to a slight agreement, Jesus takes the upper hand, and it's now his turn to ask them a question. Now, what would Jesus ask these people? If they've just ran him through the ringer, asking him all sorts of uh, obscure, confusing theological questions to try to trip him up. What would Jesus ask them when he's given the chance? Well, the, the reason we named our sermon today, Who is Jesus, is because what Jesus prioritizes is not confusing theological debates. Even throughout Scripture, the apostles, they, they condemn things like that. Like, hey, stop arguing about endless genealogies and things like that. Focus, make the main thing the main thing. And to Jesus, his moment on the floor, his main thing is to introduce himself. To, to explain to these people who are apparently movers and shakers in the culture and community, he's explaining to them who he is and what that means. A couple years ago, uh, about three and a half years ago, March 2016, we did a, a sermon study called The Red Letters of Jesus because there's this, there's this uh, kind of movement in, in our culture today that says well, all we believe in scripture are the things that Jesus says. We only believe the red letters. And sidebar, that's not a, that's not a very good thing to do for reasons we can't discuss right now. But the reason we did that was to try to see, okay, what are the things that Jesus talks about the most? We came up with five, and the number one thing that Jesus talked about was himself. Jesus held to the belief that the most important lesson he could teach his people is who he himself is. So it's here that Jesus takes that opportunity. Let's go ahead and read the passage. We're only going to read three verses today. It's Mark chapter 12, verses 35, 36, and 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. The word of the Lord this morning. Before we get into that, we have to really, really understand where these scribes are. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is like where they are cognitively, where they are at uh, building a framework of, of who Jesus is and the things that he has done. This is not the first time that they've become acquainted with Jesus's claims to his identity. This is not the first time. And here's the kicker, hear this. This is not the first time. This is the last time they will have this conversation with him. Because after this, this occurrence, they will no longer have dis, dis, uh, discourse with Jesus. They're not going to be discussing this with him anymore. And Matthew's gospel tells us that once Jesus and, and these, the scribe here have, or Jesus and his listeners here have this conversation, the Pharisees and the scribes, they don't talk to him anymore. This is not the first time Jesus tells them who he is. This is the last time they have that discussion. Up to this point these people who are enemies of Jesus Christ already have heard Jesus' reputation. 
They've heard all the people who were possessed by demons, and Jesus cast out these demons, and demons say that you were the son of the Most High, you were the son of God, and Jesus is telling, telling them to be quiet. But they also know uh, in, in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus forgives the sins of the paralytic, and the scribe there says, why do you blaspheme? Only God can forgive sins. Also, the apostles have confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has welcomed worship from people. He's even called people to follow him religiously. Here, when Jesus introduces them to this conundrum of Scripture, they already know who Jesus claims to be. And more importantly, they know what Jesus claims to be. That Jesus claims to not only be the Christ, the Messiah, but that he claims to be the ultimate judge over humanity. That he claims to be God and therefore has the same authority of God himself. They do not believe this. Two reasons they don't believe this, they don't like Jesus. He's not the man that they expected the Messiah to be. Now, what is the Messiah? The Messiah throughout Scripture is, is categorically this, this concept of someone who is going to be sent to rectify everything wrong with the world. And they've been waiting for this Messiah. We'll get into, a se- into a, in about a second of what those prophecies tell us about the Messiah. But... They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah because they didn't like Jesus. He's not fitting their description. But secondly, there was no room in their understanding of Scripture that the Messiah would be anything more than just a person. So they see Jesus as like, Jesus is trying to make himself the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy, but he's also overinflated it and exaggerated it. This Messiah is supposed to be a person, uh, someone from the royal line of David who's supposed to do great things for our country, and clearly Jesus wants us to think that he's that, but he's also trying to tell us that he's the son of God, that he's come down from heaven to us to reveal God to us. They didn't think the Messiah was going to be that. And so not only did they not like Jesus, therefore they didn't believe that he was the Christ, They also didn't believe in Jesus' design and framework of what the Christ was supposed to be. So Jesus presents them with this. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David. So Jesus asks this question at large. He's not talking directly to the scribes at this point. He's won this conversation. He's stolen the floor from this gauntlet. So he's kind of talking at large. and He's saying, how can the scribes hear this? Scripture experts, people all of you you respect, how can the people that all of us respect claim that the Christ is the son of David? Now that question raises eyebrows. Because as far as everyone understood, the scribes were always right when it came to Scripture. And as far as everyone at this point understood, the Christ was supposed to be the son of David. And let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about messianic prophecies. So way, 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 way back in Genesis 3, at the time of the first sin, God promises one that would come and resolve the problem of sin itself. When Adam and the woman who would be known as Eve, they eat this fruit, they disobey God, God promises that there will be a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent while being simultaneously bruised upon the heel. So we learn a little bit about this coming Savior. He's going to be a human, because he's going to be the seed of the woman. He's going to be human. He's also going to be a man. But that doesn't narrow it down a bit very much, right? A, a male human being coming? We, we don't know that much about uh, We can't really predict anything from those qualifications. And so as history goes on, those qualifications narrow down. Moses says that God will raise up a prophet like me from your own people. So we know that the Messiah is going to not just be a human man, but he's going to be an Israelite human man. Then there's, uh, there's, this, there's this place in Genesis, so we're going back a couple books. There's this place in Genesis where Jacob, 
who, who's known also as Israel, is blessing all of his sons, who would become the patriarchs of all the tribes and clans of Israel. And he comes to his son named Judah. And he kind of alludes to the fact that once the Israelite people become a monarchy, become a kingdom, the royal line will be from the line of Judah. And he says that there's going to be this sort of mysterious figure that comes from that royal line that he refers to as Shiloh, or which means which literally means the one to whom it is appointed. There's this expected one that's probably going to come through the line of Judah, who's probably going to be a kingly figure, and that's one to whom it is appointed. So we start getting this idea, okay, so, so this Messiah is going to be a human man. He's going to be an Israelite. He's going to be from the tribe of Judah. He's going to be a royal figure. So now it's narrowed down quite a bit. But then... Israel does get a king. They do get a king, but he's not from the line of Judah. He's a man named Saul, and he's from the line of Benjamin, and he, he doesn't do very well. He starts out very promising, but then he really goes astray, and when he's taken out, his dynasty does not continue to his blood child. Instead, it goes to his son-in-law, a man named David, the son of Jesse, from a land of Bethlehem. Now, David, he represents the greatest historical figure in Israelite history. Not only does he become this wonderful, majestic, regal king that takes the kingdom of Israel to new heights that it's never seen before, but personally, he's also a very, very godly man. His name literally means beloved, and that's an aptly name for this man because God loves David. And by all accounts, David deeply loves God as well. God qualifies David to be the next king of Israel because he says that David is a man after my own heart. And so for obvious reasons, David is a historical hero and role model for Israel. So let's stick with David for a little while longer. He becomes the king over Israel and he, in this, in this great affluence, he realizes that he himself lives in a palace and he's very comfortable. This is a man who is a man of warfare, who spent a lot of his life running around fleeing from his enemies. So now that he's sitting in a palace, it's a brand new lifestyle for him and he feels very blessed by that. But then he realizes in comparison that God dwells in the midst of the Ark of the Covenant. And if you don't know what that is, we could talk about that another time. But the Ark of the Covenant is stored in a tent. It's something that could be picked up and reinstalled somewhere else. And David thinks that because his security and his stability surpasses God's, that that is wrong. Remember, this man loves God very much. So he has this idea. I have a lot of money. I have a lot of resources. I have a lot of builders. I want to build a permanent palace for the Lord, a house of the Lord, a temple that's more than just a tabernacle that can be moved around. But God has not chosen David to build him a temple. God says no. He declines that very generous offer. But in response to that offer, God says this. This is 2 Samuel 7. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And the verse goes on. This is what is called the Davidic covenant. I know that this is a lot of history. Just stick with me here. This passage promises one thing and maybe a second thing. One thing and maybe a second thing. The one thing that it promises is that the Davidic dynasty will not be cut off the way Saul's was. But the Davidic line, the Davidic dynasty, will be everlasting forever. It will be an eternal dynasty at the, at the choosing of God himself. Now, the second thing that this may also be promising is an illusion of who the Messiah is going to be. See how this is talking about a person of, of great peace that God has chosen? But 
The reason that's a maybe is because this is also talking about David's literal next son, Solomon. This passage talks about that this man, this the successor of David, is also going to be imperfect. So this can't be talking about the Jesus that we know, at least not entirely. Probably dual fulfillment. 2 Samuel 7.16, though, says this about David's dynasty. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we get this idea. The Messiah, a human man, Israelite, probably from the line of Judah, probably a kingly figure. If he's a kingly figure from the line of Judah, now we know he has to come from the line of David because David's dynasty is everlasting. But even further than that, the prophet Isaiah, several hundred years later after David has died, talks about one being born who would, who would sit on the throne of David to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even to forever. One figure, one person sitting on the throne of David. But this, this person is not going to just be political. He's also going to have supernatural righteousness and judgment in him. Because in Isaiah 11, it talks about that when this Messiah comes, when this son of David comes to David's throne, not only is he going to fix the political problems for Israel, he's actually going to resolve all brokenness of nature. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. That's a poisonous snake. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be the full, shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, remember that's David's dad, Jesse, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Does that sound like just a really good politician? Now, my people, since you guys have elected me, not only will I make taxes more affordable and our roads more navigable, but uh, now, from now on, no animals are going to attack anybody. Feel free to let your babies reach into a poisonous cobra hole. <laughs> King, out, mic drop. There's something deeply supernatural about this figure that's to come through the line of David. A couple more. Two more I'll give you guys. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now that's interesting as well. This is going to be someone who comes from the line of David, but he's going to be called by the name of Yahweh. The Lord is our righteousness. Sure, maybe that's, maybe that's just the name of him, that he's referencing God, but that's a little bit strange. That this messianic figure would be able to fix nature and then bear the name of the Lord. It's just a little bit strange. Last one. Remember I said David was the son of Jesse and he lived in a land called Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, or some of your translations may say Bethlehem of David, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth, uh, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Micah 5.2. This is talking about a birth, or at least an arrival, in Bethlehem. That's invoking Davidic terms. That's the, that's the land of David. There's going to come one from there, from Bethlehem, but he himself is actually from ancient days. This is somebody perhaps who's existed all of eternity, but coming through Bethlehem. Perhaps being born in Bethlehem. 
Now, as previously stressed, if the Jewish people were long awaiting this Messiah, they would want to know all of these qualifications. And who would they look to to tell them where they could look for the Messiah? What would be his qualifications? They would look to the religious elite. They would look to the scripture experts, namely the scribes. Why do the scribes say that the Christ will be the son of David? Uh, We just went through some of those reasons. It's a pretty hard case. But we also went through some passages that say that this Messiah, this son of David, is going to be some, someone more supernatural. That is going to be greater than just an average politician, but even greater than the greatest politician. That he himself even commands and restores nature to peace and harmony. That yes, he will be from David's town, but yet somehow will be from ancient days. So Jesus asks that question, and then in verse 36, he elaborates to that question. Because the simple answer is, why do the scribes say the, the Christ is the son of David? Some could raise their hand and say, oh, because scripture seems to say that. <laughs> you know? But this, this is the follow-up. This is the follow-up to elaborate with why Jesus is answering, asking this question. Just so you know, this is a, a common rabbinic approach to, to a sermon, where a rabbi would present these two apparently contradictory points, and then he would spend the rest of his time resolving these two apparent contradictions in Scripture. So here is the contradiction, or the apparent contradiction, verse 36. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared the Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And go ahead in verse 37. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Notice a few things to begin with. Jesus attributes this passage that he's quoting to David's authorship. This is Psalm 110, and it is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament because it is a very, very deliberate and clear prophecy about who the Messiah is supposed to be. Secondly, Jesus declares that this psalm is written under the influence of the Holy Spirit. What we, what we need to gather that is according to Jesus, not according to Matt, but according to Jesus in this passage here, the Old Testament, even the poetry of it, is dictated by the Holy Spirit, influenced by the Holy Spirit, and therefore, we have to consider it accurate. This has to be the standard. That's the way Jesus approaches scriptures, even the Psalms. And he draws a conclusion If David wrote this, and he wrote it under the influence of the Holy Spirit, so it's therefore divinely accurate and correct, then how could the Christ be both the son of David and his Lord? Psalm 110 is all about a figure who exercises supreme judgment on all of his enemies. There's a few things that uh, this figure is promised here. He's promised to be seated at the right hand of God, which is the place of highest honor to God. This is the very best seat that God can offer anybody. And, the, and this posture of seating means that Jesus has, or excuse me, the figure, spoiler alert, I just told you who it is. Um, this figure is supposed to sit here because it's a place of honor and that posture means that he has to do no more work, that his work is done and everyone else is subservient to him. Until I make your enemies your footstool, God will triumph over the enemies of this figure who is seated at his right hand. And this this figure in this psalm um, wages great warfare upon his enemies. And then God says this, I have sworn and I will not relent. You are my priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I'd love to talk about Melchizedek, but I can't today. But effectively, those promises that God will give this figure the place of highest honor forever, and that God will give this figure the role of priest, a mediator between God himself and everyone else forever, this is God's final choice for this offer. So who could this song be about? I, I, I know that we, we're going to assume that it's a messianic 
prophecy, that it's a messianic psalm. And if you, if you think that, you're not alone in that. If I think that, I'm not alone in that. The conservative understanding of Psalm 110 is that it was a messianic prophecy, that it was a, another clue into the qualifications of who the Messiah would be. But let's explore that a little bit. Because Jesus says that David says, the Lord said unto my Lord. The figure that this psalm is talking about is that second Lord. The way that this is written is the, the first Lord is all capitals, L-O-R-D. That is the hidden, unspoken name of God that we sometimes pronounce as Yahweh, all capital, L-O-R-D. In the original writing, as David wrote this poem, it was Yahweh, or the name of God, said to my Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. That word is Adon, which means my master, my boss. My God said to my boss, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, whoever this boss, whoever this master, whoever this Lord is, the figure of the psalm, he must be someone great. Because David, the most important historical figure in all of Israel, considered himself less than this figure who he's describing in Psalm 110. David called him master. David called him Lord. David submitted himself to the service of this figure whom he's describing. There's very few people in scripture that David himself calls Lord. There's three. There's three. The first one is King Saul. You remember that king who was in power before, before David was? David called him Lord. Some examples of that would be... Um, my notes. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 26, he's talking to Saul and he's calling him Lord. But every time he refers to, to Saul, he gives him that place of honor. My Lord, the King, or my Lord, the, the Lord's anointed, which is a kind of a lowercase m, Messiah. Because Saul was the king. And David recognized that governmentally and even spiritually, he was put under the submission of the king, Saul. But this passage cannot be talking about Saul. I'll just give you a quick reason, because later on in the psalm, it talks about that this figure ruling out of Zion. Zion is a nickname given to the city of Jerusalem. It describes the religious character of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, but only when David was king, not when Saul was king. Jerusalem didn't even belong to Israel until David, as king, conquered Jerusalem. And then sometimes Jerusalem, just like Bethlehem, is referred to as the city of David. An example of that would be 2 Samuel 5.7. Saul ruled out of not Zion, Jerusalem. He ruled out of Gibeah. It can't be about Saul. If this is referring to Zion as the religious capital of Israel, this has been written long after Saul's death. Second person that David calls Lord, a man named Achish. And this is weird. Achish was a king of the Philistines. There's this weird time in David's life where he goes rogue. He pretends to be um, helping the Philistines, and he goes lives in a land called Ziklag where he lives in privacy. So secretly, he's just taking out all of Israel's enemies, but he's making it look like he's uh, a servant of the Philistine king Achish. And he calls King Achish Lord. So some people who are not so happy that we Christians have taken Psalm 110 for ourselves say that maybe Psalm 110 is about the Philistine king Achish. Probably not. Again, it talks about Zion. Zion has never been associated with the Philistines. Even before Jerusalem belonged to Israel, it was not a Philistine city. It was a Jebusite city. Again, what's that second promise that God has elected this figure to be his forever priest. Now, knowing what the Philistines have done in their idolatry and done to the people of God, and knowing that Achish himself, his line was ended, is that somebody that God has chosen to be his forever priest? Probably not. The last person that David calls Lord is Yahweh. God himself. An example of this would be uh, Psalm 9. David submits himself to the service of God. Remember, this is a man who deeply 
loves God and has great affection for him. He's submitted himself to the service of God. But this psalm, the primary figure of this psalm, is not Yahweh. Because the books, the, the song starts with, Yahweh said to my boss. God is, God is talking to somebody else. There's a conversation here. So this psalm is probably about the Messiah. Now, really quickly, how could David call his son Lord? That's the question that Jesus asked. And let, let me make some sense of that. In this culture here, this patriarchal culture, a man would never call his, his progeny, his successors, Lord, boss. He would never submit himself under the service or rule of somebody beneath him. Remember in the, in the book of Genesis, uh, Jacob, Israel, is, is deeply offended because Joseph implies that his dad would one day bow to him. And he's like, will your mom and I bow to you, son? And he's deeply offended. Or, or Jesus says that the father is greater than I. But even more so than that, we actually have accounts of David talking to his kids, even the ones that would be king, or talking about them even. A great example of this is 1 Kings 133, and this kind of makes me laugh. And the king, that's David, said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about himself. The king says, hey, go get the servants of your Lord. You know, me, your Lord. Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him, to the, bring him down to Gihon. He's talking about here about when Solomon is to be crowned king of Israel. He was passing his reign over to Solomon. If there was ever a time for him to show reverence and respect and submit himself to the service of his son, it would be around this time. Because Solomon was supposed to be a great king. You remember David offered to build the temple for God, but God said no. God had chosen Solomon to build this temple. But even that great king, the second greatest king in the Davidic line, David would not submit himself to call him Lord. And there are other places where, where David's talking directly to Solomon when Solomon is already king, and he's just saying, you, 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 you. Be a man, you. When he's talking to Saul, a kind of rotten king, he calls him my lord when he's talking to him. My lord, the king. But when he's talking to Solomon, just you. Be a man, you. Do this stuff, you. So, so Jesus is implying something here that, that David, David is talking about somebody great. Now, that, let, let's use some Socratic logic here. You know, Socratic logic that says, if Socrates is a man and all men are are mortal than Socrates is mortal. Let, let's use some logic. If, if the Messiah is supposed to be the son of David, and Psalm 110 is about the Messiah, therefore Psalm 110 is about the son of David. So how could David call his son Lord? Now maybe these, these, these experts in the law, they never realized that there's this sort of discrepancy, or maybe they did and they didn't know how to resolve it, but Jesus brings it out. This Jesus, who is already at this point, um, allowed people to believe that he's the son of God, that he himself speaks for God, that he has come from heaven down to earth. And now he's cast some doubt on what, what they think that the Messiah is supposed to be. He's saying, you think that I'm not the Messiah because I claim to be somebody greater than the son of David? But your scriptures already allude to the fact that the Messiah is going to be the son of David, but also something greater than the son of David that he would be one from the ancient days, that he would be able to resolve all the brokenness in all of the world down to the animal kingdom, that David himself called him Lord. And then when the people at large heard this, they listened to Jesus gladly, like, man, that was clever. Now, in this passage, Jesus is not saying that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, would not be the son of David. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that the, that the Christ, the Messiah, would not merely be the son of David, but something more. Remember, this is the last time that he's going to talk to these people and have an actual discussion before they see to it that he's arrested and then executed. 
he takes this opportunity to say, I am more than what you think. The Messiah is to be more than what you think, and I am the Messiah. This is what Jesus takes priority to do for these people who are his enemies. You know, I think all of us will have to wrestle with the identity of who Jesus is. It's the most important thing that he's trying to communicate to all of us. The number one thing that he's ever preached on, if you, if you tag everything that Jesus teaches, categorically the most frequent thing he teaches is who he is. And that's what he's trying to speak to all of us today, non-believers and believers alike. It's the greatest thing that he can speak to us. If we are not resigned and reconciled to the identity of Jesus Christ, the very best we can be at the height of morality, at the height of agreement with Jesus, is like this scribe who is merely not far from the kingdom. John MacArthur says, one cannot have the wrong Christology and still be awarded the gift of salvation. What that means is you have to know who Jesus is and you have to agree with who Jesus is if you are to be saved. As we often say at this church, it's not about doing the right things. Paul says in Romans, you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That word is kurios. And and in the Greek translation of Psalm 110, it's Yahweh says to my kurios, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You remember in in Mark 8, Jesus is asking, like, hey, who do people say that I am? They're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. He's having a conversation with his disciples, and they start throwing out things. Well, we've heard that you're the prophet. We've heard that you're Elijah reincarnate. We've heard all these things. And Jesus says to Peter, or he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And that is the point. That is the point. That in our personal relationships with God, that Jesus turns to us and says, but who do you say that I am? All these people say all these things about me. Who do you say that I am? And and any answer that falls short or underestimates who Jesus claims to be, the closest you can get is near to the kingdom of God, not far from it. But that is not salvation. There's a lot of answers today of who Jesus is. And some of those answers are correct explanations of the part of who Jesus is. Those who do not consider themselves Christians and appreciate who Jesus is say that he is a good teacher. That is true. That is accurate. Jesus says this, you call me Lord and teacher and you say rightly, for so I am. He he accepts that title just in the same way as he accepts the title of son of David, but just as he is not merely the son of David, he is not merely a good teacher. Because there's an apparent contradiction there, because Jesus also says, he who loses his life for my sake. Jesus, you say that he's a good teacher, but he also tells his students to die for him? How could Jesus being a good teacher say that? if he's merely a good teacher? And the answer to that question is the same as this, how could David say that he's the Lord? Because he's not merely a good teacher, he is more, he is God. And for those of us who are believers, functionally, we live live our lives that Jesus is just a part of who he actually is. For those of us who live like he's just our judge and just the king on the throne, you're right. He is that thing. Jesus himself says that you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. A fierce picture of Jesus' role as King and Lord. But how could Jesus say that he's King and Lord when he also says, I no longer call you servants. I tell you to love one another as I loved you. I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. How could Jesus be a king and yet also be so loving toward us? Because he's not merely a king. He also wants a close relationship to us. And there are also those of us who think that Jesus is merely our friend. 
that he's merely our savior and that he would never challenge us or tell us what to do. And that's not wrong either because Jesus says, if you love me, you would obey my commandments. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? He's not merely our friend. Just like he's not merely the son of David or merely our king. He is so much more than we tend to believe or as we tend to behave. Here's the, here's the thing. As a good teacher, the greatest lesson Jesus ever taught his people is who he is. As a great king, the very best decision he made as a king was to come as a baby in Bethlehem and then live a poor, squalored life amongst his people. The greatest thing that he did as our friend is to command us to not do the things that destroy us and the people around us. Jesus is greater than we can imagine. I'd like to read Paul's dissertation on who or what Jesus is. This is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like, but I'm gonna read after uh, out of the New Living Translation because it's a little bit easier to follow. We don't have time to exegete it. So if, you're, if you'd like, you're welcome to just listen. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all of creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made things we can see and things we can't see such as thrones and kingdoms, rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. That's through Jesus and for Jesus. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he's the first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's, this is the punchline, Christ's blood on the cross. Believers, we will never fully appreciate or be able to fully glean from the gift that is Jesus' death for us, unless we know all of those first few things. This is not just a good teacher who died on the cross for us. This is the creator. This is not just our king who died on the cross. This is the all-powerful judge who could have executed judgment upon all of us. This is not just our friend who died on the cross, but this is the one whom we worship And so it is a deep offense that he died on our behalf. We'll never fully be able to embrace and receive the the mighty wonders of our salvation unless we fully wrestle and then resolve ourselves to who and what Jesus is, which is definitely more than we tend to believe or to behave. And for those of us who are not believers who believe that Jesus is a great example, a wise and loving good teacher, you'll never be able to fully receive what Jesus has given and taught unless you know that he's more than a good teacher because Jesus says that he's a good shepherd and the sheep hear his voice and he gives them eternal life. If you don't believe that Jesus is supernatural and powerful and able to do that, then you cannot receive the salvation. The closest you can be is near to the kingdom. And so for those of us who are listening today, who are still with me, believers and non-believers, if Jesus is more than we tend to believe, we have to wrestle with, we need to meditate upon, and then resolve and resign ourselves to agree with who he says to be, and then believe and, and behave in such a way that those things are true. We have to constantly redesign our framework of who the Christ is, who the Messiah is, who Jesus is, in order that we may do him justice and honor, give him the right kind of praise. 
And the way we do that is by hearing his word. Last few things. He's told us that he's good. He's told us that he's the son of God. He's told us that he is our king. He has told us that he is our judge. He has told us that he is our friend. He's told us that he is our sacrifice. He has told us that he is our priest. And so much, so much, so much more. The more time you read in scripture, the more that framework breaks apart and expands to be something greater and greater and greater. And the more you resign ourselves to agree with that framework, the more we receive the salvation that he's given to us. Anything less than that just won't do. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you've given us the lesson of who you are. We thank you that uh, the, the verse that many of us know, that John 3.16 says that out of the love that God had for the world, he gave his only begotten son, that our gift is not good doctrine, is not resolution for confusing things that seem to contradict. The greatest gift that you gave us was a person and is a person, namely Jesus Christ himself. So I pray for myself as well as for my brothers and sisters here that we would give ourselves, resign ourselves to your teachings, which are predominantly about who you are and what you are, and that we would never see you separate from your office and the honor that you should have in this world, and that we would never see the cross separate from your magnanimity. Let us be your people who know who you are and say, yes, Lord, we agree and we praise you. And we permit you to befriend us and we permit you to teach us. We call you, Lord. We permit you to judge us. We permit you to rule over us. We permit you to defend us. We permit you to protect us. Lord, we, we love you and we welcome you to continue us on this walk and journey, which is a greater and greater revelation of who you are. And as we know you more than those other things, those doctrines, those behavioral modifications, they will flow out of seeing who the perfect example, our God incarnate really is. In Jesus' name, amen.